Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. And we invite you to stick around for the portion of our show we call How We Move with Ambassador Shabazz, who always gives us some interesting insights into our conversation and lets us know what she's been up to around the globe in her travel. So stick around for that, How We Move with Ambassador Shabazz. So in 16th century Naples, a galette flatbread was referred to as a pizza. It was known as a dish for poor people, particularly as street food and was not considered a kitchen recipe until much later, not until the Spanish brought the tomato from the Americas and developed the variation that pizzas in their modern conception were invented. Well, who doesn't like pizza? Whether a folded, oily, gooey slice consumed while standing at almost any pizza shop in New York City, or at Moza in LA where Nancy Silverton found a way to make pizza new again, the staple of the American diet is not showing any sign of slowing down. My guest today, Rick Rosenfield, certainly knows his way around a conversation about pizza. This native of Chicago and I could debate the merits of the deep dish Chicago pie versus the thinner New York City crust version, but I'd rather do that over a pizza dinner with Rick than here. In 1985, Rick Rosenfield left his law practice in Los Angeles and teamed up with his friend Larry Flax. Together, they pooled $200,000 in bank loans and savings, along with $350,000 invested from friends. Wolfgang Puck, pizza man Ed Ledoux, who was making unique pies at the original celebrity-packed Spago on Sunset, entered the picture. Rick and business partner Larry Flax leased a space on Beverly Drive in Beverly Hills, putting the West coast in the national pizza conversation when they opened the first California pizza kitchen. CPK, as it's known, now operates 250 locations in 14 countries. Serving as co-CEO for the restaurant's first decade, Rosenfield and Flax stepped back to a co-chairman role for a few years, but again took the reins of the public company from 2003 until 2011. The legacy lives on through the continued growth of the brand. Rick recently announced plans to return to the restaurant world with the introduction of Roca, a Roman-style pizza restaurant set to open two locations on the west side of Los Angeles. And I can tell you, as a longtime fan and patron of CPK, it is a pleasure and an honor to welcome a true legend in the industry, CPK co-founder Rick Rosenfield. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. So nice to meet you, sir. Uh, thanks, Brad. Thanks for the introduction. You're welcome. And I also want to give a shout out and thank you to Mary Wagstaff and Naomi Evans at Wagstaff for, uh, for putting this together for us. I really appreciate it. So, Rick, we start off here with a little restaurant terminology, a couple of easy questions to get us rolling. I call short order questions. So tell me, what is your morning beverage? What's the first thing you consume in the morning? <laughs> Not much for a restaurant question. But there is zero doubt, maybe a, a couple of sips of water, but then right into black coffee. Black coffee. Is it a French press? Nope. I've, I've, it's freshly ground, but it's not French press. I've experimented with it, but in the end, I like turning on the machine. Okay. It grinds the coffee for me and makes a cup. The whole process is probably two minutes from start to finish. 
And I was working with the mocha press recently and grinding it. I can only do that for about a few days at a time. I'm not that much of an aficionado. <laughs> okay. I'd love to know what people are listening to. So what type of music do you listen to, would you say? Or what's what are you listening to mostly? Are you listening to podcasts these days or music or both? I have to. I, I can't answer that without telling you. I listen to my daughter, who's a recording artist that's under the name Claude Fontaine. And she's on her second album. Her first album is a mix of half reggae and half bossa nova. Wow. Yeah, check it out. I will. Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E-F-O-N-T-A-I-N-E. But uh, I do that regularly. But if I'm not, it's uh, listening to Sirius. I'm usually listening to the Sinatra station or Broadway. All right. Bossa Nova and reggae. That's an interesting combination. I love both of those styles of music. So I'm going to, I'm going to check out your daughter. When you do check it out, you'll see she's got these, she has these wonderful accomplished musicians in both Bossa Nova and reggae. And it makes quite a combination. So anyway, I'll leave that pitch alone, but I'm very proud. Yeah, of I don't blame you. I would be. That's intriguing. I, I love the sound of that. So if it's possible, Rick, can you tell me your most memorable restaurant experience as a customer? Wow. I don't, I have to think about that. I think, I guess probably I automatically go to meals that I had with my wife when I first met her and she was a stewardess living in New Orleans and we would go to Antoine and, and drink a great bottle of wine and have a, a chocolate souffle made. So probably, as I think about it, probably the most memorable restaurant experience. That's lovely. That's lovely. Tell me, what do you love most about Southern California? The weather, for sure. That growing up in Chicago, you know, I grew up in a family of lawyers. I always assumed I was going to go back and be with my father, his brother who had then passed away, but my brother who was with the firm, it was Rosenfield, basically Rosenfield and Rosenfield. And when I graduated law school, I went off to Department of Justice in Washington and was writing briefs in the U.S. Supreme Court, came out to California as a special prosecutor for the summer and never wanted to go back to Chicago to live. It was a hundred percent, you know, I actually think it was not a hundred, not just a hundred percent the weather, but the people too, there, there was a, an openness about California that was different than Chicago. As much as I love the people in Chicago still do. What year was that, Rick? When did you move to LA? I moved to California permanently in 1971. I was offered a job here at the U S attorney's office that the U S attorney wanted me to stay in California. Uh, but I went back to Washington for a year. I had this amazing job working in the U.S. Supreme Court for the government. And it was it was very heady stuff for a young lawyer, for sure. I bet. I'm sure you ate a lot of pizza in those days. But tell me, your favorite pizza spot, not CPK in L.A.? Well, I do think it's Bozo. I think Nancy Silverton is a baking genius. And I think her crust is amazing. I would agree. I would agree. A real treat in LA. I don't know if she's still doing it, but I would often go to the counter and sit there and just watch her work, the pizza station. And she's just fun to watch and talk to. I haven't been there in a while at the pizza station, but my guess is 
she's still hands on there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's jump in. I take it you're in LA? I am. Yes. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Good. Good to hear. Getting ready to open, as you mentioned, our new concept in about just a few days. It's like the opening of a Broadway production, <laughs> opening of a restaurant. Because I'm on pins and needles in a lot of ways. <laughs> that it is. All right, we're gonna we're gonna get to that. It never leaves. Never, you know what? It, that never leaves. No, no, that excitement. I know what you mean. I want to talk to you about that too. You're practicing law as a federal prosecutor. It's the early '80s. Wolfgang Puck's Spago is packing them in nightly on Sunset. That's the original location across from Tower Records on Horn Road and Sunset. I went there, Rick, when I first moved to LA in 1989. And I ventured way outside of my pizza comfort zone when I tried the smoked salmon and caviar pizza, which I fell in love with. But you loved the pizza at Spago enough to cause you to switch careers. So tell us a little bit about that process. And Rick, if you don't mind, set the stage for us a little bit. It's early 80s. Spago is this exciting, dynamic place. Wolfgang is this kind of new guy on the scene. And just set that stage for us a little bit. Sure. So for so. With my partner, Larry Flex, we actually, we were together in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the early 70s, and then we left. So we actually practiced a white-collar federal criminal defense practice primarily for 13 years. And it just became frustrating. And yet, at the same time, we both loved food, like everybody, how many people dream of being in the restaurant business, right? So we always had one concept or another. We had, at what point it was going to be, we discovered Tony Roma's ribs down in Florida when it had one unit. They said, okay, we do great ribs. Let's knock off, we met Tony Roma. We said, let's knock off Tony Roma and then bring Tony Roma. And so we always had these ideas, except it always got interfered by some other big case that we were defending. So... We kept putting on hold and hold. And at that time, so in 1984, we were involved in a big fraud trial up in San Francisco. And my daughter was two years old. And going back, it was, this was months, this was a couple months, and going back and forth and being away all week. And finally, it just got to where we said, you know what, let's do it. We came back. It's getting really frustrating. We don't want to keep, we don't want to keep this up. We're beating our head against the wall. So at that time, and going back to what you were just introducing, Spago was really hot with celebrities. It was the celebrity restaurant and it was two weeks to get in. If you didn't know and tip the maitre d' and, which would get you in. But other than that, you literally couldn't get in. And Puck was introducing these famous pizzas, right? It was that smoked salmon pizza. It was duck sausage pizza, et cetera. They were very exotic. But Puck was not the first person to come up with this California-style pizza. It was Alice Waters in, in Chez Panisse in Berkeley. And I don't know Alice Waters. And there's a historical dispute in the pizza world Jeremiah Tower, this famous chef, was working there. And the question they have is, who actually came up with the idea for California-style pizza? Was it Alice Waters or was it Jeremiah Towers, who was the chef? 
I've never seen that satisfactory result. And frankly, I haven't lost a lot of sleep over. <laughs> but I do know, but I do know while you're being a pizza historian, that's it. And then Puck came down and Ed Ledoux, who you mentioned, was a pizza guru who was working at a, with a wood-burning oven at Prego in San Francisco. And Puck discovered him and brought him down because Puck wasn't baking pizzas. And he brought Ed down to be the original pizza cook and to create pizzas at Spago. So those, two, those original pizzas were Ed's ideas and Ed's concoction. When we came across Ed, Ed had already left Spago. We came up with the idea before we met Ed. It was how we came up. We said, you know what? Let's do this pizza concept. Let's create something. At that time, we were thinking for the masses. Like the term we would use, would be, let's bring Spago to the masses. And because for people who can't wait two weeks or don't want to pay that much money. And then what we really wanted was for families. That was really the concept. And then let's put that pizza oven in the middle of the room and have a pizza counter. And literally it was Spago for the masses. So we ended up hiring Ed as a consultant. And if you want me to continue that story, or you can introduce some other questions about it, but that's literally how the original idea blossomed for the concept. I know you make a good argument. You're a lawyer, so you know how to build a case. You convinced friends, though, to invest money in California Pizza Kitchen with no restaurant experience. Right. And I would think people would say, Man, Rick, you've lost your mind. Look at Rick and Larry, you guys, we love you, but restaurant business, really? So what right. were those conversations like? How did you get that across the line? No, it's a, the first thing we started, what we did is we literally mortgaged our home. We went to our bank. We borrowed a quarter of a million dollars. As I said, to mortgage the house. And we thought that would probably cover the conversion of this original site. And it became quite clear that wasn't <laughs> going to happen, that we needed more money. It's interesting. We made, I think, 23 calls in an afternoon, and we got 22 yeses. Wow. And it was what nobody was betting on, on Rick and Larry's experience in the restaurant business. We didn't have it, but we had credibility as people. People trusted us, and they knew us as being very honorable guys and I think smart guys, I assume they assumed we were smart and that we could figure it out. And they liked the idea and everybody said yes. Clearly they were not wrong. A space guy, Rick, I love, I would drive around LA all the time and say, oh man, that building would be a great restaurant or that location would be great. How did you find that location on Beverly Drive? And what spoke to you about the location, the building, the interior? What was it that made you say, you and Larry say, yes, this is our location? I lived about six blocks from there. And I literally, those were the early days of, I, they were pretty early in, in the history of running in this country. And, and I was, I think I actually had run a couple of marathons and every day I would run up from my home about a mile up to Beverly Hills High School and back. In fact, a lot of the investors I brought in were doctors or lawyers that ran with me at Beverly Hills High School, but they had to listen to me every day. That's why they said yes. <laughs> but that was, that literally was six blocks from the house. And so we knew the neighborhood really well. Oh, so I missed actually part of that. So one of our friends, clients, the, not a criminal client, civil client, 
was the chairman of the Beverly Hills Chamber of Commerce. And he would tell at that time, South Beverly Drive, south of Wilshire, was considered a graveyard for restaurants. This site that we had failed as four other restaurants. And he was the one scared us that said, you can't make a living in the restaurant business on South Beverly Drive, right? Now, now let's fast forward 30, how many, 36, 37 years, right? Now they say, we're lucky we found such a good location. <laughs> it's Little Restaurant Row and we're Little Restaurant Row and we've got, we got very lucky to find the location. I would say because down the block from us was Paul Fleming, who founded, who literally was the first franchisee of Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. And he was a guy from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who had convinced Ruth Bertel, who had one unit of Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in, uh, in Baton Rouge. He convinced her he could become a franchisee. He had no experience. And he opened two months before us on South Carolina across the street. That was the first Ruth Chris Steakhouse franchise. Wow. So we were very commiserate with each other, not knowing anything about the restaurant business we had in common. Clearly, you had a, an unknown knack for picking a good location. I tell you, my first experience at CPK, Rick, was at the Beverly Center, and I moved to LA in '89. What year did you open at the Beverly Center? That was the second CPK in 1986. Okay. First one was March of 85. That was June of 86. Right. And I had, I went there on a date and I had the garlic chicken pizza again, the second time I was outside of my pepperoni comfort zone. And that became my go-to pizza, man. I just, I, I love that combination. And don't know that I'd ever had a wood-fired pizza prior to that. And what it did for the dough, the scent in the room, it was pretty seductive, that, that environment. Of course, the what we call our Big Mac, what made us famous was the barbecue chicken pizza, right. of course. Those were the earliest days of wood-burning oven, that oven we imported from Italy. May I add something interesting, yeah, by the way, is that we literally created the term wood-fired. That was on our logo. Wood-fired pizza did not exist as a term, but we couldn't trademark. Ah, okay. But today, now everything is wood, wood-fired everything. But we were the first person, to my knowledge, to use it. Okay. CPK redefined not just the idea of wood fire, but the pizza experience. And I'd only known traditional double-decker ovens, although wood-fired ovens, even though they maybe weren't referred to that as that, they were, they've been around for a long time, for thousands of years. Also, cold-fired pizza, as we know, places like New York City's Lombardi's or Pizzeria Regina in Boston. My wife and I go there every summer when we're coming to, to and from the Cape. Love it. They've been in business since 1926. So these concepts were around for generations. But can you talk a little bit, Rick, about the decision to use a wood-fired oven? And what, what let you know that there was an opportunity to redefine the pizza experience? I understand the looking at Spago and saying, okay, here's a celebrity-packed place. Wolfgang is doing pizza. But to translate that into what you did with CPK still took a little bit of X's and O's to figure out. So what was that process like? Well, I'll tell you what the process, what happened, right? The original idea was, as I mentioned about the wood burning oven, but it was also about this idea of using toppings that people were not familiar with on pizza, as opposed to a tradition, or no, I should say 
and not as opposed to, because we also did traditional pizza, but the concept was that when Ed came to us and he created the barbecue chicken pizza, our menu had seven pizzas on it. The others, just among the others were duck sausage, lamb sausage, rabbit sausage, radicchio pine nut, and grape leaves, and barbecue chicken, and mushroom pepperoni and sausage, which we wanted. Over half of our pizza sales were barbecue chicken. So let's say for the sake of argument that we sold 200 barbecue chicken pizzas in a day. If you could guess how many rabbit sausage pizzas we sold <laughs> in a day at the time. In Los Angeles. It would be one, it would be one or two. Right. Okay. Lamb sausage, lamb sausage, the same, radicchio pie. Everything was about barbecue chicken pizza. And where we diverged from Ed, because Ed, as I've read things written about us over the years, about what Ed's role was, and I absolutely credit Ed with opening our eyes and creating barbecue chicken pizza. Ed only was with us about a month, right? And what Larry and I recognized was, and Ed didn't recognize this, quite frankly, is Ed wanted the really exotic stuff. And we started to say, no, you can see from barbecue chicken pizza that people want something else, okay? But they don't want duck sausage or rabbit sausage and radicchio pine nut, okay? So we created the Thai chicken pizza and the Mexican pizza and all of these pizzas Right, that that people, what we, what Larry and I saw was our benchmark is what foods do Americans like to eat, but they don't associate with pizza. And once you get rid of the idea of keeping tomato sauce on pizza, that opens it up. The Thai chicken pizza has Thai saute. Why? Where did that come from? That came from the fact, like anybody, you go to a, a Thai restaurant, you order the saute, you run out of chicken, you've eaten all the chicken, you put the bread in. So. What we did is we put a more common touch on it. One of the things I learned about this business, it's sometimes the people who are in the business, the chefs, because they are work their rear ends off, basically six, seven days a week, they actually don't get out to restaurants as much as patrons do. So we brought some fresh thinking to all of this. And then the other part of it, which was our what we caught right away was that, that we can get into this and ultimately this became about the people to work for you, that, that we can talk about that forever and will as we, you and I go on here. Yeah. What we saw right away, which I'm diverging on this, but really important is, and I would say that to anybody who engages in the fantasy of going into the restaurant business, in the end, it is not about the concept. It's about the people that work with you work for you. Because if we, had, if we didn't understand it was about the people, we would have died with one restaurant. I don't care how good your concept is. Rick, I do want to come back to that because as I alluded to, and it's not a, a well-kept secret anymore, the, there's a labor shortage around the country and the hospitality industry is really affected by that. But I want to come back to that because I know you have some thoughts on it. And as hard as it may be to believe, we are approaching the 40th anniversary of CPK, and you've had a front row seat as the business of restaurants slash food is TV and entertainment, celebrity chefs, delivery apps. All of this has evolved into what's estimated to be just north of a $900 billion business now. 
The pandemic introduced us to the term essential worker and restaurants took center stage as both one of the hardest hit industries, but also some state and local officials turned to restaurants for meal deliveries for the elderly and other essential workers. I had friends in New York that were delivering meals for emergency room nurses and doctors. But then there was confusion over opening and closings, masks, vaccines, labor shortages. It's been a rocky few years, to, to say the least. And those of us in the industry saw some of the challenges like labor shortages years before the pandemic. As an independent restaurant owner myself in 2018, my labor costs had risen 78% since we had opened our restaurant in 2012. And that's not even to mention cost of goods which has also continued to rise post-pandemic. So, Rick, I know there's a lot to unpack here, but what, from your purview, is the state of things in the world of restaurants? And specifically, what has happened on the labor front? Where are the workers? And unemployment is low, but yet we still hear about this worker shortage. So if you would dive into any part of that industry overview, if you would. Again, so I don't have a complete macro view of what it is. I have, as you say, I have what I read. I know what I experienced. I know what happened during COVID. We had another concept that was a seafood-centric full-service restaurant in Brentwood that went down in the pandemic. It couldn't reopen. But what I feel that happened was that so many employees were not working and then we flooded the relief money in, right, which paid a lot of people to not work. That happened. I know anecdotally that we asked people when we started Roca at the pop-up in Glendale at Americana at Brand, and we were seeking workers. We went to former workers, and they'd say, hey, there's no reason I could come to work for you because I'm making more money by staying at home. But the other part of this, too, is that you've got two income families, right? Here's what I believe happened a lot is with kids out of school, okay, now you had the issue that you needed one parent, at least at home, where before you might not have needed that parent at home because the kids were in school. So now you had to balance in each family that may have been a two-income family, one of them has to stay home. And in a number of cases, that obviously was the restaurant worker, then male or female. So I think that's played into it. And then I can't answer exactly why everybody hasn't come back. It's clear in California, in the industry part that I know, that the fact is you pay way more than minimum wage to get people to come to work for you, that you're paying $20 an hour. You can't, you cannot get people to work for you. So even at a much higher than minimum wage, it's still difficult to lure people back to the restaurant industry. And I, I don't have a full understanding of it, quite frankly. As you say, the unemployment rate on a macro level is low, and yet the industry is still in a shortage. People, I think, not working, started doing other things. And I think the work ethic enters into it. Working in the restaurants 
is hard work. Mm -hmm. It's not for everybody. So I want to, I agree with you. I want to point out an article that I read recently in the New York Times. It was titled Fighting Over Dinner. And it characterized the relationship between restaurants and customers as antagonistic. Citing examples from the film, The Menu, I haven't seen that yet. I don't know if you have, but the article traces some of the symptoms of this very necessary relationship that is between the public and restaurants has gone bad. And here's a quote from the article that advances that point, and I'll get your thoughts on the other side. So it says, quote, during the pandemic, the idea certain workers were essential took hold, but that gained them little respect beyond a brief spate nightly of nightly applause in big cities. If anything, the opposite happened. The people on the front lines from emergency rooms to meat processing plants came to be seen as disposable. Their lives and labor of worth only insofar as they benefited those privileged enough to be able to shelter at home or otherwise stay out of harm's way. End quote. Rick, I don't know if you agree with these sentiments, but I do. I've read where and I see these videos on YouTube of these fights in fast food restaurants where employees get drinks thrown at them. There's a certain amount of acrimony that seems to have crept in to this relationship. What's your perspective on that? And is that potentially something that's turning workers off from wow. reentering hospitality? Wow. So in your reading that to me, my reaction to that was, I have never seen anything like that. Meaning that's not been my experience with the restaurant business, not been the experience of people, let's say from an ownership standpoint, I've never seen that antagonism. At CPK, it was part of our training. We did train there was such a thing that we called the customer from hell. The customer that had a bad situation with their family or something happened that day at work and they take it out. And what we call it that is, and that's true of service people. There is a certain person in a certain circumstance that beats up on, on defenseless individuals. That could be a flight attendant on the airplane. It could be a banker. And it happens, clearly happens in restaurants that people are miserable and take it out because because that server, that employee is, quote, in my mind, defenseless. So that happens and we train for it. But in my experience, fortunately, that is very rare. That would be the smallest fraction of 1%. To the contrary, we have great customers who love, they love being there. The other part, our employees had great pride in working for us. So I didn't experience this. I do see the stories that you're talking about. I read about that and wow, I don't know that. But that isn't anything, frankly, that I've experienced or seen in the restaurants in, that I've been involved in. Fair enough. But I think that on a personal note, I experienced it more, I think, as a result of kind of Yelp culture where you've got patrons who now watch the food shows, who now are a lot more informed or they'd like to think so about dining out, and a lot are, and the ability now to review a restaurant real time and affect its business as an operator, there were certainly times when I appreciated those reviews and found them instructive. There were other times when I felt that they were unfair. And that to me is, a, is an indication of something. I'm not quite sure what. A better educated customer certainly isn't a bad thing, but it does come with some challenges. 
Yeah, now on that, there's an issue when it gets to the social media. I'm with you on that one. It's scary, right? It's scary. It's scary that somebody who has a bad experience or considers themselves an expert can really do damage and can be malicious. Yeah. That's endemic to the industry now. It's a, it is a challenge. It's, it has been since it arose. I know at CPK, we had somebody basically 24 seven monitoring Twitter in those early days of Twitter. It's like, you have to get a response out right away. It was interesting during the period that we had our pop-up on Roca, our new concept open at Americana, we had between four and a half and five stars the entire year. And I know which, but I would read that. It was like, wow, that's really good for a restaurant. That's right. But frankly, I would prefer it didn't exist at all yeah. because it can be something could happen that's very mean spirited that could really seriously affect your business. Right. I'd much prefer to try to recover a guest real time in the room rather than read about it publicly and have it multiplied and extrapolated by however many eyeballs are now on it. Everybody in the restaurant business knows that if you can talk one to one to a guest, you can resolve anything. That's what's always one thing, by the way, that scared us about takeout delivery in the earliest days too, is like, if there's a problem in the restaurant and customers eating there, you can solve it. But we all know, and this is really true. If a customer calls in and says, I ordered barbecue chicken pizza, but it, but I got a mushroom pepperoni and sausage. There's nothing you could do to fix that right away. Or I ordered, there was no chicken on the pizza or whatever that range can be. That's frustrating for the customer. And it's really frustrating for the restaurant as well, because I know that the managers, I know at CPK, managers would literally get in the car and drive right. over orders to solve these That's things. That's the answer. I'm sure you probably, I bet you did it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Let's talk about Roca and relative to one of the subjects you just brought up, delivery, which has become a, a big part of our business. But there are also other factors now that we have to consider. Automation, because we're looking at labor costs rising, how we handle the various. And I had a friend that dined recently at a restaurant who was charged a surcharge for water, a 22% gratuity on a party of two. And there was one other item that he just, and this is a regular dining. He has no problem spending money, but he just felt like, man, it just, it's like the airlines where they just have this whole list of surcharges that you don't even know what they're for. But as you contemplated the, the concept for Roca, what did you think about in terms of how you wanted to refine the model for what works in today's business atmosphere? In deciding on Roca, what pushed me into the ROCA concept, by the way, ROCA stands for R-O Roman and C-A California. So that's the ROCA. So the ROCA part, the Roman part, I should say, was this style of pizza that's a pan pizza that literally what, and I use the term, it travels well, meaning it's actually sold at room temperature brought home in a pan and then popped in the oven to warm up. We all know it is in general, other than if you're really hungry or really hungover, I guess, as people would say, reheated pizza isn't the best pizza, right? This pizza actually is. It's about the way and the style, what's in this pizza, how it happens, how this crust is made with a three-day fermented dough and the way it works on the proteins and the glutens and the fact there's so much water in this dough, so it creates this light, airy dough that 
when it's reheated, it's crisp, but still light and airy. What's interesting was Roca was a concept that I was going to do before the pandemic because I saw this paradigm shift. Third-party delivery, takeout with the young people all moving in this direction. And you have to go back and historically, let's just say 2019, this shift had already occurred. So my idea, the original concept I was going to do wasn't going to be called Roca. It was a different name. And it was going to be what CPK would be today. And that would be wood-burning oven, organic flowers, organic dough, organic toppings. My daughters have taught me a lot, pushed me a lot. I always thought I knew pretty much about nutrition, but my daughters have driven me more and more into all the health benefits of different food items, et cetera. So all of that coalesced, and that was going to be the concept, a better-for-you, premium ingredients, full-service restaurant. But before the pandemic, I literally shifted and said, no, I, I could do that. Okay, with the way everything is shifting now, okay, I want to do a takeout delivery concept. And then came the pandemic. Right. As we all know, that introduced hundreds of millions of people to delivery and takeout that hadn't been doing it before. It was, it was exponential what happened to delivery during the pandemic. So setting the stage for what I'm doing now, quite frankly, I didn't envision this half a thing, right, in that sense, but I did that the whole concept was based on that movement. So is Roca strictly delivery and takeout? Yeah, in the first two, it's strictly delivery and takeout. And that's the concept. And we'll see what it proves over time, whether we decide we want to try a different prototype with seating and not, I don't know that yet, but the concept is at this moment, it is takeout and delivery. It's takeaway and delivery. And your own delivery trucks or vehicles? Not yet. We're using literally every one of the third-party delivery services. Interesting. Very interesting. However, at Palisades, we do have outdoor seating. Ah, okay. So there, there is seating in front of the restaurant, and then there's immediately adjacent common area seating. So there is seating. It is takeaway. You're not eating in the restaurant, but there is the ability to come up, pick up the food, sit down and eat. All right. I w- I'm going to come back to Roka in a minute, but I do, I want to talk about another subject, but related to Pacific Palisades, where my wife and I, we had a home there until uh, we moved a few years ago. And I loved it. And we moved just before Rick Caruso started the downtown development. And I've seen that it's quite different than when we lived there. But you're going to do both Pacific Palisades and Marina Del Rey, two upscale communities on the west side of Los Angeles. Both areas are the beneficiaries of investments and development. Rick Caruso, who also developed the Grove, an outdoor shopping mall in the heart of Los Angeles. And Rick, as a former L.A.-based restaurant operator, I certainly recognize having a relationship with a wealthy, powerful developer like Rick Caruso has value. But I have to say, through my lens as an African-American, I also feel frustration that I or operators that look like me do not, by virtue of relationships, be it business or social, have the same opportunities. And I think it would be a tough case to make that there's a level playing field there. That said, there is some cause for optimism. African-American chef Kwame Nwachi recently opened 
Tatiana at Lincoln Center in New York. And I think that's an indication that certainly is a landmark in New York City. A sad irony, though, is that, or an interesting irony, is that uh, it was built on an area called San Juan Hill that was formerly a predominantly African-American and Puerto Rican neighborhood that was displaced when Lincoln Center was built. So I guess there's a nice ending to that story, at least where we are in the story, that Chef Kwame has a restaurant there. But my question, I guess, to you is, given the growth of jobs in leisure and hospitality, and post-pandemic, it's predicted to be one of the fastest of any sector, what do you think the collective voice relative to diversity, inclusion, and opportunity should be? What statement should we as an industry be making on that subject? I think in my reflections on the restaurant business, I sort of have a purest sense that I'm very proud of. When people say, and I think I touched upon this, what I'm most proud of at CPK is what we did and our relationship with our employees. And we created a culture very early that Larry and I, that we called ROCK, R-O-C-K. R for respect, O for opportunity, C for communication, and K for kindness. And we gave out Rockstar Awards conveniently. Okay. But when you think about that, every component of that is very serious. And the way we would talk to about it, Larry and I, when we would go to new restaurant openings, whenever we would speak to our staff, whenever we'd speak to management conferences, we would always talk about rock. And I'm going back 37 years. We would say CPK is race blind. It's color blind. It's religion blind. It's ethnicity blind. It's gender blind. It doesn't care. I could, I can't, education blind. I had no idea what people worked for me or managers, whether they went to college or high school. I had no idea. We rewarded one thing. We rewarded people who were rock people who got along with others, respected others, were kind was the one word we'd always say. Larry and I would judge people when we, in terms of promoting them. Are they a rock person or not? So when we sold the company, so we had been in business like 37 years. We had 35 regional directors. And among those regional directors, that they had an average of working for us for 14 years. And almost every one of them, call it, if there was one, I don't know that we ever hired a single one of those from outside of our company. Everybody was promoted from within. And where did most of those promotions come from? They were people that started in the kitchen. We learned in this business is, is it's the hands-on people that get the respect. It's a, it's a person who works in the back of the house and gains the respect that can move to the front of the house more than a front of a house person that could go to the back and gain respect. So for us, we didn't, we didn't talk in race terms in those days, but we did talk in, if you want to talk about inclusion without using, that's a more modern term to me, but CPK was very inclusive. And that's how I'm starting Roca too, right? We all know that one of, that's a beauty of this industry is that people who work hard from all different ethnic backgrounds 
can really make it in this industry. This is what makes the industry great. I don't have the wide experience you're talking about in the inner city community because it's just not where I built the restaurants. By the way, just for a moment to go back to Rick, because Caruso is a friend of mine and been a friend for a long time and years. He really does put his money where his mouth is in, in the inner city. That I learned, I was surprised when he was running for mayor that he had spent a hundred, he and his wife, who I know too, spent $150 million on local charities in their lifetime. And so he doesn't get credit for that because mm -hmm. people see him as this rich developer, but he goes down in, into the city and he and his wife always, and with their kids, and actually worked in the charities that they were giving the money to. So I, I only say that because I think it can be misconstrued about Rick and the more people got to know him, the more they understood what a genuinely great citizen of Los Angeles he is. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And just a, another thing that just comes to me as I'm listening to you, because I believe that you are sincere in what you're saying. And I'm curious, and this may be a stretch, but would you say that your background in law, having been both on the prosecutorial side and the defense side, has allowed you to develop a certain empathy for people? You've seen people trying to fight for their lives and maybe in the restaurant world, you come to it with a certain amount of empathy. Is it, is there a connection there? That's interesting. I guess in my own background, I grew up on the South side of Chicago and literally South shore, which, and so I've had empathy my whole life. And my father, who was a personal injury lawyer, was most of his clients were poor people. And I don't know, I guess in my own life, it's been part of how I was raised. My father raised me like that, to respect all people, to care about all people. And that doesn't make me perfect. Okay. I'm, not, that's a, I don't, I'm not trying to be on a high horse, but I do know that about myself. Right? And then there's no question being both a prosecutor and defense attorney, right? So I see everything down the middle. I, not everything is a bright line to me. I see both sides. When I, every, every time somebody, everything I see on TV, I see the other side as well, right? But going back is, yes, I'm empathetic. My, my wife is an empathetic person, right? So that's how she was raised in a big Italian family. And I just think it is part of our being. And my partner was the same way. My partner was very empathetic, very philanthropic and always felt that way. And I said, I'm so proud. I'll go back over it, Brad, is what I said when I, is we lived rock. We really meant it, right? That's what this CPK was, that's what made it successful. What made it successful was people loved to work there, right? And so they went home and then they would meet their friends or they'd meet someone and say, where do you work? And say, I work at CPK. God, they say, I love that place. It must be great to work there. But it was all about the people. I can attest to that. And you refer to people-centric hospitality, Rick, in some of the things that I've read that uh, where you've spoken. And uh, I can attest to that feeling in your restaurants. And that's a, it's a job well done. It's not an easy thing to do. And that uh, what you've been describing emanates throughout the culture of, of your restaurants. Congratulations. I think that's not an easy thing to do. And that's the culture, I think, that the restaurant industry strives for. Oh, thank you. And as I said, of all things, I, it's of what I'm most proud 
All right. So maybe the, uh, the most important question of the day I've saved for the last one. So the, the hit on the first album was the barbecue chicken pizza that, uh, that went gold, we'll say went platinum. What's your pick on Roka's menu? What do you think is going to be the one? Okay. We have barbecue chickens. <laughs> we have Thai chicken, but when in our pop-up, the most popular one was Soprasada, spicy, like salami type product with burrata cheese. Yeah. So with melted burrata on it and a basil, like basically a pesto on top. And that was the most popular. Love that. But on the other hand, I, I like the barbecue. You know, people would always ask, the, I'll set this up as Brad, but people would always say, what's your favorite pizza? And my answer is, Barbecue chicken has been very good to me. <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> You're going to have to keep singing that song at every show, I think. <laughs> so at CPK, my personal favorite was the Sicilian. Oh, okay. So at Roca, all of our products, all of our meats, our proteins, they're all antibiotic-free, hormone-free, our pepperoni, et cetera. We've searched the world for getting really good-tasting products that are better for you. Nice. Okay? Very nice. What is the projected opening? The projected opening is Monday. Whoa. Okay. How long would it take to have a pizza delivered to Miami, you think? <laughs> That's going to be, a, we have to, when we get, once we start freezing it, the beauty of this is it actually can be frozen. That's another thing about it. There are third party, there are, there's gold bellies around that you can have things frozen. So not that long. And, Florida's been was a good market for us. Uh, Naples as well, yeah. as you mentioned that earlier. I could see that. I love South Florida. It's an interesting market. I don't love the humidity, but I love yeah. But I love South Florida. I like the weather in LA better. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree. I'll be in LA soon, and I'm looking forward to visiting Roca. Rick Rosenfield, you're a legend, as I said, and I'm really appreciative of your time today, and I wish you all the luck and best of health in the years to come. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. It was fun. Appreciate it. Appreciate that. Ambassador Shabazz is here. How we move. What's going on, Ambassador? California Pizza Kitchen, they had a presence in LA. And I associate my early years when I first moved to Los Angeles, spending a lot of time at CPK. We're New Yorkers now. We grew up folding that slice and having that Welch's grape with that Fanta orange. <laughs> Where was your spot in New York? Mama Leone's was for someone's house, actually. We lived amongst people where that was what you ate at their home, right? When you were at someone's home, you were Italian or you were Jewish or you were Jamaican, <laughs> depending on whose table you were sitting at, right? Or whose grandmother was cooking. But I have to say, listening to him, you knew him as a restaurateur. I just knew the experience. And so today I put the genesis of the remarkable genius of those two men together with what my experience and my memories have been over the last couple of decades. And my heart beats warmly because it really was something that when you chose the California Pizza Kitchen, you knew you were going to have a tasty meal and a warm atmosphere. It really mattered. So to listen to their preamble and their mission and the concept of rock, and what did you say was the, the, when you asked him in reference to how does one invest in non-restaurateurs opening a restaurant, they talked about the credibility that they had as people. It matters. That goes a long way. People will follow you. 
no matter where you are and entrust your dream as part of theirs. And I thought that was really magnificent and have this kind of people-centric restaurant concept. It's, it speaks to my spirit. Yeah, me too. I love it. And on that note or adjacent to that, with all of the conversation around diversity and inclusion and how it's almost cliche, but it's become politically polarizing, we'll say. And to me, it sells the argument short. Diversity and inclusion is pretty soft. Asking for a diversified workforce and to be included, that, that's not a big ask. To me, what's missing is opportunity as the this plus this equals this. And opportunity is what it's equaled. But I'm wondering what your feeling is on how that conversation is playing out on a national level. And what should we be asking for, looking for, expecting of, say, the hospitality industry? Does there need to be a voice, you think? Does the hospitality industry need to have a collective voice here? Yes, I do. To answer that question, just I think we need to have more voices. And I think we need to know the spirit and the mission behind founders such as himself or your father that gave birth to how you host and where hospitality is not just an industry, but a nature, a spirit, a way. Right? We should all move along the world with some kind of congruent sense of courtesy and hospitality. That should happen anyway. So is there a voice that we should have? Yes. But will we ever have a collective voice? I don't know that. I think that there's a Right now is a very, it's a really tender time for many. I think on your particular podcast, the Corner Table Talk, we've got the opportunity to listen to people who have found their way through a hardships and they did it with that heart and that spirit and that ingenuity. And I think they did provide, they do, as we've learned, provide the opportunity. When he says box stands for respect, opportunity, community, and kindness, it's fundamental. Those are real. And I think any of the people that you brought on board that have gotten over the hump, even some of the initiatives that I'm working on, I think those are four characteristics that matter in all aspects of industries and life and what we choose to do going forward. But it probably takes someone from his era, which is our era, where a bit of that idealism is connected to a social culture. And I think the newer generation is learning or coming upon um, how to remove the singular of themselves and understand the breadth of community or collaboration. Peel that back a little bit for me. Talk about the social culture, if you will, that you're referring to. That's an interesting idea. Well, I think from our generation, we were part of it. So when I was speaking to someone about Muhammad Ali, they thought he singularly, I said, but Ali was raising an issue amidst the issue, like not going to Vietnam War. When you have people like, we were speaking earlier here at the, in the high school about Dance Theater Parlum or Alvin Ailey. They weren't just simply geniuses. They were inspired or moved when Martin Luther King was killed and decided, never mind joining the big ballet. We'll create something. I think it's an era where that happened. I think we are embarking upon that the innovations, the uniquenesses right now, but we need to bridge the generational conversation so that those today don't think that they're hatching out of nowhere, but connecting the dots with the nature of community or generational community. I recently in Miami, just outside of where we live, 
went to get gas and was discouraged by what I saw. And I've seen this in some of the neighborhoods here, just the black and brown poverty. And it's not just the buildings that look like they've seen better days, but young people who look discouraged and look like the system is just leaving them behind. I'm just curious, and I know it's a kind of a broad question, but what's that conversation need to be right now? How do we pick those people up and include them in what you're talking about in terms of the culture and engage them? You certainly can't wait for the system. <laughs> like the system is the system. We have a historic domino system. What mattered when we were younger is who grabbed you by the back of the braid or the neck or the shoulder and who scoped you up. So we need to do more of that. We need to make sure we're reaching out. You have to not wait for someone else to do it. We have to raise one another like a village, like we did. Your mom in Los Angeles, of course, I knew your dad in New York. But when your mother was in Los Angeles and we were all migrating there, she became mama-san for many especially if you started. So we need that. My mother was talking about her earlier today that while she was a professor and all of that, she raised everybody else's kids and she would give unsolicited advice. She didn't need for you to ask. So we need to jump in. We need to dive in. We need to claim one another's people so that we can do that. Because if you're waiting for systems and whoever you want to win the vote, we'll be on pause forever. We can't afford pause. Right. Thank you. I know you are about to catch a flight and what else is new and headed back to Kentucky and then out of the country once again. And I'm just going to tease a little bit. We'll have a little update on some of the endeavors that you are taking on, which I'm very excited about and very happy for you to see you in a role that you'll soon be in. And I'm not talking TV or film. I'm talking about real life. But any parting words for, for the people out there listening to Ambassador Shabazz that love hearing your voice? I just think people have to find the authentic self. That sounds corny. We've heard eat, pray, love. You hear preachers on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday say those things. But I know for me, that's one of the things I'm channeling and rechanneling. I just want to make sure that I am only doing things that enable me to feel fulfilled. And for me, discerning what fulfillment is, assuring that there are beneficiaries in bounty, right? Otherwise, I'm a little stagnant. So I'm actually relocating. I'm choosing different spaces where I know I can be part of a continuity of growth, people in and around me. So I say people find their authentic space, right? Not root over that which makes them feel stuck, but identify that which gives them kind of wings. Shabazz, I love the way you talk. And I'm so privileged. I get to hear you all the time. But thank you for, for that insight. Safe travels. Thank you, my dear. Good to see you.